0: Leadership is the art of giving people a platform for spreading ideas that work. Welcome to DC Local Leaders, the podcast where we talk to C-suite leaders within the DC area. Our guests share their pathways to success and the important moments that impacted their careers. Lean in as we get the inside scoop on how they are shaping their industries, how they lead, manage, and connect with others. From the sectors of aerospace, defense, tech, IT, and more, this is Local Leaders. Your host has been making meaningful connections with industry leaders for over 15 years. Here's Philip Nathrum.
1: Welcome back to the DC Local Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Nathrum, and thank you so much for spending some time with us today. If it's your first time here, we're so glad that you joined us today. Please remember to follow us wherever you happen to be listening, as well as to find us on Facebook, Instagram, and come find me on LinkedIn. There's a direct link right below the show. Also, Search us out on the web at DCLocalLeaders.com. There you'll find not only our past episodes with leaders in the area, but also our Monday Mindsets and an opportunity to join our book club and newsletter, all designed to help us get 1% better every day. It's not a you thing. It's not a me thing. It's a we thing. Let's do it together. Today's episode is with Elizabeth Watson, Vice President of Strategy and Growth at Franklin IQ. Franklin IQ was founded in 2019, and they believe that every leader can inspire their workforce to meet their full potential. Their customized training courses support our federal government with an innovative approach to training, coaching, and consulting. Some of the things we discussed are adult learning theory, how she started a baking company to support her passion for dance, setting intentions, The Five Whys, Winning a Pitch Competition, and Entrepreneurship. So another great episode coming up. And as always, we are partnered with NVTC to bring you Let's Talk Tech with NVTC. That's Northern Virginia Technology Council. And you can find more information about upcoming events at NVTC.org or on their Twitter at Nova Council. Our last episode with MITRE is now up on the DC Local Leaders channels as well as NVTC.org. And again, please follow us wherever you happen to be listening. If you find any value in anything you hear, please go ahead and share it with a friend. Search us out on dclocalleaders.com. Find me on LinkedIn. I want to connect with you. So let's get into the episode. Yeah, well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. We're back with another episode here of DC Local Leaders. And today we're here with Elizabeth Watson from Franklin IQ.
2: Hi, it's, how so are you? Good. it's so good to be here. It's nice to meet you. I yeah. feel like we've been talking forever.
1: Yeah, we plan this out and schedule it and we made it happen. We're finally in person and, and we're doing it. So I appreciate you making some time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I felt like the first time we talked virtually, I felt like we've been like longtime friends.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it, we both have the same sort of personality where we just kind of talk to other people like we've already known them kind of thing.
2: Yeah, uh, very anything. disarming.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but it's a great way to be. It's how we actually make true connections. And I think that's a big part of big part of leadership and big part of this podcast, right? That mindset and and those, uh, those tools that we pick up along the way, personally, professionally, whatever they are, that allow us to connect with other people and even in business, right? You know?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. So Franklin IQ, what, uh, who's Franklin Where did this name come from? IQ, it sounds.
2: (laughs) Franklin is referring to Ben Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, the Benjamin Franklin. Brendan is really inspired by Benjamin Franklin's story, has read his biography. And so initially, Brendan had created a company called Franklin Consulting. And then in 2019, Franklin Consulting merged with T.S. Marshall and Associates and became Franklin IQ. And we are a consulting and training company mostly focusing on leadership development. and curriculum design for all sorts of really awesome government contracts. And so Franklin IQ is his baby. So in that merger with T.S. Marshall and Associates, we received all of the curriculum that T.S. Marshall had already created over like the past 20 years. And Brendan, being a really well-experienced consultant, he took that curriculum and really modernized it for today, which allowed us to pivot really, really quickly when COVID happened so that our trainings were already so experiential just based on Brendan's knowledge on adult learning theory. So when we moved virtually, it pivoted so quickly and so seamlessly. So we actually have seen such an increase in revenue and increase in need in the virtual environment, especially a lot of government clients are trying to pivot as well and not really knowing how to facilitate and foster productive teams in a virtual environment. And so we help with that as well.
1: Who are these government clients? Like, what are some agencies?
2: Um, so we work with different agencies within the Veterans Affairs, other veteran agencies, the Navy. I don't want to give specific names it, just it, for it, their I, privacy. Yeah.
1: I kind of got a look from you. I mean, I, I understand that too, but it sounds like many agencies that we probably all all know, you, the Navy, DOD, yeah. you know, people that report up through the Pentagon, Air Force, all that kind of stuff. You mentioned something earlier just now that I, I really want to adult learning theory. What, what is that? Like, how, how are we different now?
2: So if I were to try to teach you, let's say it's a course on delegation. If I'm not considering adult learning theory, what I would do is death by PowerPoint, right? I would yeah. show you step-by-step step what it means to delegate, how you delegate. Here's a model of delegation. Here's some bullets on delegation. Tell me honestly, if you would retain any of that.
1: Yeah, probably not. <laughs> I would listen to what you said probably. But, you know, if it's more than a couple slides, I'm probably tuned out or I'm not paying attention.
2: Exactly. So I would say the way that we design our curriculum, according to adult learning theory, is that we're doing one third material and then two thirds is really just experiential learning. So instead of me telling you what delegation is, we would start off by having a conversation. And this could be in a group of, you know, 20, 25 people. And we do this virtually all the time is saying, what was the last thing that you delegated? Okay, how did you delegate? And why did you do that? All right, let's work in a group and tell me about a task that you do on a regular basis and when when you're in an instance of delegating and why do you do it? And we just have a conversation. We create all these activities that folks do in these groups and the time flies by so fast. And they're actually essentially discovering how to delegate as they're talking about it, as we're reviewing the material. And so it's it's learning by discovery versus learning by telling.
1: So the group, Franklin IQ, you're teaching leadership, which means you have to be a student of leadership within your group. How does that show up every day with you guys?
2: Yeah. So, right now, we are a team of eight. When I joined, we were a team of five. So, we're continuing to grow, which is really exciting. Our tagline is innovation, execution, impact. And I would say that that sort of translates into every aspect of company culture. Like, we're always trying to think of ways that we can produce for our clients and that are really exciting and really innovative and really creative so that how do we foster creativity as a part of company culture well we collaborate on everything we read, we meet weekly and we have kind of like lifting our heads above the sand meeting and let's let's talk about strategy that's just company strategy we're not going to talk about how we have a million things to do this week let's talk about big picture company strategy. And I've never been in a company that actually has a strategy meeting every week with the whole team, which is incredible. And then we have an all-hands meeting every month where we, we talk about the position of the company, we talk about some things that we've learned or some new... So we're always sharing with each other, we're always meeting, we're always coming up with new ways that we can be creative. And then obviously that that results in impact for the client where they can experience you know something new and exciting and every class is new and exciting.
1: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you guys are innovative within the group, within yourselves, and that helps you innovate with externally to your clients also.
2: Yeah. I mean, if we siloed ourselves and sometimes it feels better to kind of like, okay, I have this project, I need to get it done. I could just like sit in my corner and finish it and get it done in the time frame that I need to get it done. But would it be the best product? Probably not. I can lean on Maggie, who's like an amazing graphic designer. I can lean on Anne Marie, who is just brilliant and has years and years of experience. So if I were to silo myself and get the thing done, sure, I could get it done. Would it be fine? Sure. But we're not trying to do fine. We're trying to do awesome. And we're trying to create like something that's going to be really impactful. So we do like, we have to collaborate in order to be successful in our roles.
1: I was looking at some of the past experiences that you have, and it seems like you have a common thread of dance that seems to be an anchor for you.
2: I moved to D.C. from Arizona for a dance company. So I moved here without a job other than I knew I wanted to dance for this company. I had just gotten my master's in dance from the University of Arizona. So I moved here, was dancing for this company. I was like, I need a a job that's going to pay the bills. And While I was in Arizona, I had started my own small business called The Bakerina, where I was baking sweets. I used my experience from managing a dance studio in Arizona to start my own company.
1: How old were you at this point?
2: I was 26.
1: Yeah. So relatively young, fresh out of school, passionate about dance, and you just started bakery to support the dance.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Essentially I was dancing for a company in Tucson and anyone that knows the arts knows that starving artists is a real thing. I could, I was actually teaching at six places. I was driving to six studios just to try to make ends meet and What's really frustrating as a dance educator is that in around the holidays is you're unemployed. Because all the kids are out of school. Everyone's on holiday break. And so studios are closed. You're not teaching classes. So for like a month, you're not making any money. And I, I just couldn't. I couldn't do that. So I was like, well, I'm an OK baker, I think. So I'll just make a cute little form for people to buy my baked goods. And I'll sell baked goods around the holidays. Well, I'm more than an okay baker. I've learned. <laughs> well, I'm an excellent baker. So thank you, grandma, for your skills in that. But So I started selling baked goods around the holidays just to essentially compensate for the fact that I was unemployed during the holidays. And, what kind
1: of stuff were you baking? Was it cupcakes or Oh, cakes
2: no. Or I, wanted, I wanted more of a challenge than that. So over the holidays, I make a chocolate roulade, which is a really thin sponge cake. And it's filled with espresso mascarpone cream. And you roll it up. And you cover it with chocolate ganache and then you make it look like a a log and then you dust it with powdered sugar so it looks like snow. So it's this beautiful like chocolate rich cake and it serves about like 12 people. So I was making those around the...
1: Where would you do this?
2: In my kitchen. There were certain standards that I had to meet in order to be able to actually legally cook in my kitchen. So I went through training, got a certification.
1: Is that here or in Arizona? This is in Arizona. Arizona. So you're making, so you, you obviously got all that stuff Yep. and you're making it in your kitchen. Where are you selling it?
2: So I actually got connected with local farmers markets and I started selling at two farmers markets in Tucson. And if you've ever been to Arizona, the weather's beautiful all the time. So you can sell outdoors and it never rains. So it was a great opportunity. So I started selling at one farmer's market, was really successful, started working at another. And I was actually looking at getting a brick and mortar before I ended up moving here. So everyone asked me what happened to the big arena and the bakerina arena just doesn't have time to exist anymore.
1: And you were able to make ends. Were you paying rent? with? Oh, yeah. Cakes? I mean, uh,
2: yeah. And I was I was in a relationship at the time. And so we were fine. But teaching dance is really hard. And six studios and driving around all over town and dancing yeah. for a company was just it was too much.
1: Were you good at organizing or how did you keep that hustle going? Like between six separate schedules of dance teaching and then you've got to find time to supply to do your own supply chain management. Yep. Spreadsheets
2: Um, were my baby. I had to, I had to make P&L statements for, you know, baked goods and figuring out how much to charge for them. And that was always a challenge too. It's like, well, it's a $5 brownie, and people were like, How can you charge $5 for a brownie? I was like, Well, first of all, that's Ghirardelli chocolate in there. <laughs> like, that stuff's not cheap. And also, like, I'm not making a very small profit margin, and I need to compensate myself for my time, um, my time and my equipment, my certification.
1: Did you major in like accounting or anything that supported you in this? No. So you had to learn this organically.
2: I had to learn this organically, but pointing back to dance you you have to do all of these things as a dancer anyways you have to be able to you're an independent contractor so you have to be able to manage all of your different contracts you have to be able to manage the difference in the rates that you're getting at different places when you're talking about or you know organizing and trying to stay on top of teaching at six different places you know my calendar was my life and it's not just a matter of like okay well I teach from 5 to 6:30 okay but I also need to compensate for Transportation is going to take me 30 minutes. I have to block off in my calendar when transportation happens. I need to figure out when I'm going to bake. Okay. If Sunday is Saturday morning, 7am is farmer's market. I have this four hour window on Friday to be able to bake. Okay. What are the things in my inventory that take four hours or less to produce? So it's a lot of organizing. It's a lot of math, but it's, I mean, it's our bread and butter as dancers. You will find that a lot of dancers are excellent at math.
1: How long have you been dancing before, like, is there a Boys and Girls Club version of dance or something?
2: <laughs> so I started dancing when I was six. My parents took me to an Irish festival. So they wanted to go to drink and listen to Irish music. Like
1: but the clogging dancing, like the ones?
2: Uh-huh. Irish stuff dancing. But I was absolutely fascinated by the dancers. My family is Scottish. So instead of enrolling me in Irish step dancing, they enrolled me in Scottish dancing. So I started doing that when I was six and... Did really, really well. I was prepping to be championship level. I was competing nationally and internationally. And eventually my teacher was like, okay, like you're good, but if you want to be great, you're going to need to start taking some ballet lessons to, you know, get your legs longer or point your feet better or whatever it was. And so I was 12 years old going into my first ballet class and I was so angry. I was so angry. First of all, I didn't want to wear pink at all. I was such a tomboy. I was like, Do not get me in pink. And the ballet teacher, who was right to do so, put me in with all the seven-year-olds. She's like, you're a brand new ballet student. I'm not going to put you with the other 12-year-olds. They've been dancing for six years. So um, me as a 12-year-old, taking my first ballet class with a bunch of seven-year-olds, I'm in these pink tights. I'm so awkward. But I loved it. I loved it so much. I loved the challenge. I loved the rigor and me being very competitive. I was like, well, I want to be better than these seven-year-olds. And so like, how fast can I get through this? Right.
1: What do you think that now as an adult, right? What do you think that taught you or how did that hustle? How does that affect you now? You still have that in you?
2: Oh, yeah. I, I'm very competitive. But I'm competitive with myself a lot of the time. And it still affects me to the point where if I know that I want to do something, I will do it. I absolutely will do it. But I need yeah. that like, that level of commitment. And I need there to be a reason for me to want to do it. You it's need a purpose. Exactly. So it's, you know, when people or when I tell myself, like, oh, I want to lose five pounds. And it's like, well, I'm not going to do it unless I say the reason that I want to lose five pounds is X. If I don't have that reason behind it, I'm never going to do it.
1: Are you big on setting intentions? I I talk to a lot of leaders, a lot of people in companies, big and small. And I always ask them about journaling. I am statements, setting intentions, that sort of thing. Is that a practice of yours or do you mentally do it formally do it with the writing?
2: Yeah. And we actually teach this in one of our courses. It's of unrelated but it's related so this this exercise we do is called the five whys and it's really to get to the root of the problem that you're trying to solve so if i'm telling myself i want to lose five pounds well why and then i answer that and then why and so i ask myself five my myself why five times to really get to the root of why i want like why this is a problem that needs to be mm-hmm. solved and then once i get to that root i'm just like I either like, okay, like now I know, and now I have the drive because now I know the root of the problem versus I want to lose five pounds because it's beach season. Like that's not enough for me. And so that's how I set intentions is really understanding the root of the problem. Cause like I said, I need to have a purpose for me to want to do something.
1: So when you do that with your clients, give me an example of how that plays out. Like, is it like, we want to increase our revenue by $10 million this year. And then you would take them down that path.
2: So the, the last course that we taught it in was an innovation course that we taught. And I taught that class. It was a four hour course and it was so much fun. But they were participating in what's called active learning projects. So they were solving problems within their organization and proposing these solutions to leadership. So they identified their own, what they determined as problems within the organization. And then they created their own proposals for how to solve that problem. And so in the innovation course that we taught, they told me what they deemed as the problem in their company. And so I pushed back and said, OK, well, so what? Why is that a problem? okay, but why, but why? And so a lot, or I would say two out of the five groups that went through this exercise, they realized that the problem that they thought that they were solving, there's actually a bigger underlying right. issue. And so their solution no longer matched the problem. And so right. they had to come up with a different solution.
1: You're getting them to be successful with solving the problem by helping them be clear about what the problem actually is. And let's go back to now you've got this bakery. <laughs> Right. You graduated. All right. So you're paying your bills, you're baking cakes, you're teaching at six different studios. How did you find yourself on the East Coast here at Washington DC area, Maryland, Virginia?
2: So I was dancing for this company in Tucson and the company started to fold. And When I realized that, that I would no longer have a place for this company. Yes, I was teaching. Yes, I had my bakery. But really what I wanted to do, especially after just getting my master's in dance, was to dance. I wanted to perform. And so I reached out to my network. I said, all right, who's dancing for who? Do you like it? Is there a spot for me? And um, my friend Michelle, she got back to me and she was like, hey, like we're always looking for dancers. I think Chu Chen, who is the director, I think she would really love you. Why don't you come out here and audition? And so I flew out. I flew to New York. I did a couple auditions in New York and then um, took a train down here. And auditioned for Jin Dance, and Shu Chen said, "Yeah, like we'd love to have you. You're a great mover, but I can't really pay you. Like, okay, like we'll figure it out. So move down here to dance for um, Jin Dance, but
1: because about- it was your why, because it was your yeah, like you. I had,
2: I had worked so hard to get into professional dance shape. Like, I, I needed to check that box mm. in my life. Cause I had mm. spent so much time training to have my technique really strong for my body really strong. I like was in my peak physical condition. I'm like, this is my time. I, I don't, I know, you know, like at professional athletes, our duration in which we can actually be performers is pretty narrow. Mm. So I was like, I'm in my mid late twenties. Like now is my time to be a professional dancer if I'm going to do it. So I have to do it now.
1: Yeah. I guess you don't see very many, like 30, 40, 50 year olds in the pros of Ballroom.
2: There, there's more acceptance in it. Like the Netherlands dance theater, they have an NDT two, which is for folks, I believe it's 35 and up. Don't quote me on that, but I think it's older dancers, older being 35, which is bonkers. <laughs> but I mean, after a certain point, having a professional performance career is just not feasible just based on the the trauma on your body. So yeah. I knew if I wanted to perform, I had to do it now. Okay. So that's why I moved here was I was like, okay, I'm going to check my box for performing and dance for a company, but I'm still going to need to supplement my income somehow. (laughs) So
1: how did you meet the founder of Franklin initially? And like, how did that come on the play?
2: Yeah. So I I started dancing for gin and was looking for a full-time day job. I was living in Alexandria and this opportunity came up with the Alexandria economic development partnership. And they as a like, host organization under their umbrella is the Alexandria Small Business Development Center and this other organization called Capital Post. And so the fact that I had run my own business right. really helped sell me on that company. So I got hired as the receptionist for the Alexandria Economic Development Partnership. I did some odd jobs with the Small Business Development Center, but... My other t- half of my time was spent with Capital Post, which was this incubator and startup program for veterans and military spouses. Right. And we had a startup school as part of our programs. And that is how I met Brendan. Brendan came to Capital Post to participate in the startup school, which the year before I had participated in and actually won the pitch competition at the end of that startup school.
1: Yeah, because you've been doing this since, you know, you were 26 and (laughs) and you've got this hustle. It's I love stories like that, where it's those those natural parts of like who we become through challenges. Everyone has a different one, whether they're the leader of a tech firm or a nonprofit. It's these impactful moments that have happened throughout our lives. I mean, you wanted to dance and you wanted to dance so bad that you were willing to bake cakes in order to make sure you can do it. And you even took a position to come down here with no money you wanted to do it so bad. But I
0: think
2: the important thing, though, that I do want to highlight is that I never did any of those things alone, mm. is that, I, you know, I had that, you know, connections in the city of Tucson who were willing to support me. you asking for help. F- yeah, all the time, all the time. And, you know, working with Capital Post and when, you know, even when I went through startup school. So technically, I didn't win the pitch competition, but the actual winners of the competition we're like, no, we actually thank you for this honor, but we actually thought Elizabeth's company was better. So we mm. want to give her the check. And so they they actually turned down the investors and were like, thanks, but we're, we think you're wrong. We think Elizabeth's company actually has more potential. And so they actually gave me the check.
1: What was the company?
2: So it was a startup um, for caregivers for Alzheimer's and dementia. Mm. So my dad was diagnosed in 2017, and my mom is preparing to be a full-time caregiver and my brother and I both live out of state. And so it's essentially a service, an app, for my brother and I to monitor my dad's care when we're out of state to support my mom. And then also, if we ever were to come into town, that it would be a system where my mom could track and let us know how to take care of my dad. So if she needed a day off, I could look at the app and say, oh, OK, I know when he gets his meds. I know when he has a doctor's appointment. I know all everything is recorded in the app, so I don't have to burden my mom with asking for all that information. Everything's mm-hmm. in there. So that was the product. So I had worked with a developer. I had met one here in DC who is on the board for an Alzheimer's Association, very affiliated, and developer. But the the prize money for that startup competition was $3,500. And the initial investment for that you know creating that pilot would be about fifty thousand.
1: well i think you're onto something and you know there's plenty of people that are listening i'm sure we can probably find a way to to come make that come into fruition because it's sounds like it's gonna be super helpful for a lot of people
2: yeah i mean i I, again like i i'm you know kudos to franklin iq is that my goal for every thing i do is just to make an impact like i want to help people that's what draws me to every role I really just want to help people and so if I honestly wouldn't be offended if someone wanted to take that ball and run with it and I'm not involved if I can just participate that in that and support my mom like awesome well
1: so you met Brendan there what brought that conversation about or how did that conversation go
2: so in between then and now I had thought I was being handed my dream job after about a year um, and ended up working for one of the largest dance nonprofits in the country and was there Director of operations, worked there for about six months before the pandemic hit. And as- Changed things drastically. Drastically. So as a, an organization that relies on in-person in person training, person sales, it was a really devastating blow for our company. There were a lot of other internal issues. And I was asked by the board to serve as interim executive director during a really, really terrible time for the organization. Yeah. And I feel I, I partnered with another woman in the organization named Crystal and mm-hmm. her she's still the executive director of that organization. She, she had more, like I have the most utmost respect for her, but I honestly, I felt like I was given a spoon to dig the organization out of a mountain. And I didn't feel like I had the tools or the resources to actually be successful. And I mean, I worked with Brendan, we were friends. Like I would see him when he would come into the office. And so I just pinged him. and I was like, Hey man, like tell me a little bit more about what you're looking for. And he's like, Hey, can you come up on a call? And so within two days I had a phone call with him and he's like, so what's going on? Why are you looking? And I was like, Oh, let me just tell you about everything that's happened over the last year. And and I was like, so what are you looking for? He's like, honestly, I don't really have a job description yet. Like we're a startup. Things are moving really quickly. We've got these huge sales coming in. I just need help. I'm like, I I will do literally anything that you ask me to do. I could probably figure it out. And he's like, cool, we'll build the plane as we're flying it. So I came onto Franklin IQ with no job description, not, not a clear plan of like what my role was going to look like. And we just sort of shaped it and built it together. And so the client experience piece is really just working with our clients to make sure that their needs are being met, that they have someone friendly that's going to be helpful for them, and that I'm executing on the things that we're promising to execute.
1: I mean, and that story, especially for the startup world, joining a team of people that are doing something that they're passionate about, but may not have a clear job description of exactly what they need you to do to help, but they can see that you have the skill set and the ability to do something. That's a common thread. In a startup like that, there's probably a lot of pressure, right? And it's a small group of people that are trying to do a large number of things. How do you maintain a certain mindset? I mean, you've got like a great personality and a great ability to know what your purpose is and and drive after that. But how do you maintain that mindset? Are you a meditator, a journaler? Obviously, as a dancer, you have a workout routine, I'm assuming. Like, how do you just keep yourself not just physically, but mentally fit to be able to? show up at a startup company where there's so many things happening all at one time
2: i think that's the only way that i could actually thrive is by having so many things happening at the same time if if artists and dancers are anything, they're resourceful. I think dancers make natural entrepreneurs because our whole job is to solve problems quickly and pivot quickly. So I really thrive in a startup environment because I have so many things going on at the same time. I like managing my time and seeing like, so the other day we were actually creating a bunch of collateral for a new proposal that we're creating. And so I play a little game with myself. I'm like, how much can I create in 30 minutes? Mm. 45 minutes. Okay. How many things can I create? And I would give myself like little blocks of time. I'm like, all right, after 30 minutes, I'm going to stop and see how how far I can get along doing that. And it's fun. Like that's so much more fun than like, okay, I'm going to spend the next six months on this one project. Like, I don't know if I could handle that. I feel like I would be bored out of my mind, but as far as like, what I do. I mean, I would love to tell you that I I meditate and that I journal when I can. Usually I exercise is a great way for me to turn my brain off or I'll try to do something creative. This is going to sound really lame probably, but honestly, the way that I meditate is by painting my nails. It's just really mindless. It's calming. I like the colors. It's a way for me to express myself artistically, but it's also such like a low lift and I can do it in my home. So that's my, my outlet as far as setting my mind right not thinking about work not spiraling and just calming
1: what's going through your mind when you're dancing
2: so if we're talking about training, like if I'm in a ballet class just taking class, there are some exercises like let's say I had a really great ballet instructor in grad school named Melissa Lowe who would give the same warm up every class and it was a really lengthy warm up and it once you memorized it it did become this like very meditative because you you it was in your body and memorizing something with your body is totally different than memorizing something with your mind. But once it was in your body, you could just kind of shut your brain off and just calm and like really feel the muscles, feel where things are tight and the Those are the things that you focus on right now, because I've been dancing from home and it's (laughs) been a struggle. What I usually think about is like, Oh, not tracking my knee. Oh, I'm usually self-correcting the whole time, which we do in our jobs every day, but I am constantly self-correcting when I'm taking class, when I'm performing different story, that's where muscle memory kicks in. And I'm really thinking about who I'm trying to be, what I'm trying to emote in that particular moment. Like, am I, am I incorporating my breath? Like I, if I'm in a suspended moment, am I actually inhaling in that moment? Do I exhale to drop? Like trying to create texture with my breath, trying to create texture with my movement. Am I being dynamic in my movement? More focused on the character versus focused on the technique.
1: A lot of leaders, a lot of folks that I've talked to, they have something, right? One, you know, whether it's bodybuilding, triathletes, they're a runner, they're whatever they bake something but they have something and you've kind of always had dance as kind of like a passion of yours that has helped you build a lot of skill sets it sounds like that seems to just come full circle it helps shape franklin iq to whatever it's ultimately going to become
2: yeah. And I'm I'm creating a piece on thought leadership right now that, that specifically addresses that. I think dancers get a bad rap a lot of the time as a sort of useless degree to get, you know, I hear a lot of, about students who they want to pursue dance in higher education and their parents are like, well, why don't you pursue a real career? It's mm-hmm. like, well, I really want to kind of debunk that myth that dancing is a real career and you can pursue so many things outside of either... Running a studio or being a professional dancer, and in no, like no shame on going through any of those career paths. But I would not be successful in my role or any of the roles that I had, which were not dance related, had it not been for dance. You know, even down to when I was really rigorous about you know dancing professionally, I would track every calorie that I ate. And so I would have spreadsheets that I created for eating. I had spreadsheets that I would create for, you know, workout plans. And all of that has translated into creating budgets. I mean, it's essentially the same thing. Tracking my calories is the same thing as tracking a budget. You have certain line items, you have a certain amount that you can expend. How do you want to expend that? It's the same thing. Being a communicator, we would have to meet with donors and patrons after every performance. If you weren't, good at communicating with those folks, or if you weren't kind, if you weren't courteous, I mean, that could mean that you don't get another ticket sale next time. So you learn those skills, you learn donor management, you learn how to fundraise you. There's so many things that you learn as a dancer that is just so innate. And what's so special about that too, is that, you know, if you were an accountant, you go to college for that, you have four years. Well, I've been dancing since I was six. Mm. I've had so many years of experience that I've built on learning how to teach. I mean, I've taught, you know, leadership classes and it's not because that I'm an expert in leadership, but I know how to teach. Mm. You can give me five slides on whatever and I can facilitate a conversation or I can get you excited about this particular topic that I may be super unfamiliar with, but I'm going to pull that out of you. Like we're going to talk about it and that's just that's from dance.
1: Yeah. What I love about that is it's the education that you got through doing all the other things that you were doing that directly apply to what you're doing now. It's those skill sets, those impactful moments over time you built the skill set of teaching other people how to dance well yes there was the dance but you built a skill set on teaching other people and understanding the human condition and how each other's how we learn
2: and uh, how to how to motivate people yeah. that's huge trying to figure that out as a leader is absolutely essential but like learning how to motivate your students yeah. that's a really hard and, and
1: are they to, children are they Adults,
2: I teach. I teach everybody right now. I'm mostly working with teens and adults. Adults are my absolute favorite to teach. I love teaching. adults. Yeah, but I think
1: if you can motivate a teen to do something, you're probably going to motivate a classroom (laughs) full of people. Like, yeah, no wonder you guys focus and specialize on our military and and government agencies, because if you can motivate teenagers to do something, I would assume adults that want to be there.
2: You know, what's yes. so interesting, though, and I I've said this so many times throughout the years because I somehow keep ending up in either veteran service organization or veteran serving organizations, is that I feel like there's so much overlap between veterans and dancers in the the rigor in which they are trained the camaraderie that they learn from working with their company it's there a lot of it is very similar the they, the amount that they have to problem solve with very limited resources or in a very short period of time so dancers and veterans actually are i feel like are really closely tied we're we're brothers and sisters in that respect
1: yeah no i can definitely follow like the the, the connection you're making there right and a lot of the clients that we have here at dc local leaders and a lot of Listeners and people that we've had are all veteran owned companies or they support our military and they support our federal government and many of them are former military people. So we love that. And the discipline that we learn doing that is similar to to dance or I think that's probably why a lot of the leaders have gravitated towards things like a triathlon or sort of marathon running or some sort of physical activity or or anything or activity that requires a heavy discipline. There seems to be something about being disciplined. That allows us to then be in a leadership role or build a skill set that gets us there right to learn something new, we've got to be disciplined about taking those repetitive actions to learn it, whether it's muscle memory, mental memory, there seems to be a connection there.
2: Well, creativity thrives within parameters, right? Like if I told you to paint a picture. How many decisions would you have to make to be able to do that? Like, but if I told you, I want you to paint me a picture of your favorite memory when you were age seven, well, now I've given you parameters and now you can be really creative. Right. So I really think that having those like landmarks in your life or in your routine, those give you the parameters in which you can be creative. Okay. Like I'm going to set aside 30 minutes in my morning. Uh, to do X, Y, Z. Okay. Well now I can be creative with that 30 minutes because I've set that 30 minute parameter. But if I just say, like I'm just going to figure out what the hell I'm going to do in the morning. Well, I mean, it's really hard to give yourself any sort of freedom in that space because it's too much freedom.
1: I don't know if you know, Jocko Willick, he's wrote a couple of different books and also has a podcast. He talks about how discipline equals freedom. And that what you just said reminded me of that. Um, Because the discipline of having certain, like you have those parameters and now you can be free. Now you can be creative. I mean, he related it to like when you have a routine and wake up at the same time, work out at the same time, you know, if you do the same sets of things every day, if one of those things is off, it's very easy to switch it out with something else and to handle that, that challenge and to come up with a solution for that one problem, because you're not trying to recreate 10 different things all at one time. And, And what you just said about how the mind works kind of really makes me think about that.
2: Yeah. And I, I'm working on a decision-making course right now. And the average adult makes 35,000 decisions a day. And those are conscious decisions, not even unconscious decisions, 35,000 conscious decisions a day. So if you could eliminate some of that brain space by having those like set routines, even if it's, if it's only set, you know, to the point that you have 30 minutes in the morning to do whatever it is that you want to do, that's for yourself like that that is so much, um, of a lift, like lifting that burden off of yourself. It's really, really healthy. I don't know what the threshold is. I'm sure it's different from person to person, but decision fatigue is real. That is a very real thing. I'm sure you've experienced it where you, right. you've been making decisions all day. You get home partner says, or friend says, Hey, what do you want to order for dinner? Dinner? And you, you say, I don't care. And even though if you do care, You just, I don't want to make, make I don't want to make another decision. I want somebody to make that decision for me.
1: Do you guys coach any courses on decision fatigue and how to avoid that or how to set up those parameters so that you don't, experience that in certain vacuums of when you're making decisions for your clients?
2: We absolutely could. The decision-making course that we're working on right now is client-specific and it's really around not necessarily how to make a decision because we found that the folks that we're tailoring this to, they know how to make decisions. It's getting buy-in for their decisions and how to understand their stakeholders, how to know who they're talking to, how they want to receive that information so that it will go over positively. So you made a decision that you want to you know, relay to your workforce. OK, well, you could just tell them, is that going to go over? Well, probably not. How do you get their buy-in? So that's what we're working on right now is how to get buy-in for decisions.
1: Yeah. Well, listen. I I don't want to miss the opportunity to talk about gratitude because I talk about gratitude with everyone that I talk to, basically, and especially to everyone here on the DC Local Leaders podcast. And where, like, you know, what do you think about gratitude, and how does that show up in your day?
2: So I will. I'll point back to that you know any success that i've ever achieved has been the result of other folks supporting me so the way that i show gratitude is actually to people not necessarily to myself of course i'm grateful for you know even being in an apartment right now like that's incredible you know being employed right now i'm grateful for that i'm grateful for the the opportunity but the the way that i actually take time is being grateful for other people and making sure that they know that i'm grateful for them i recently went to tucson over the fall And during COVID everything, I made sure to stop by the very first studio that I ever worked at. I stopped by, I found my old boss and I told her that I was so grateful for her and for giving me the opportunity to trust me to help her build her business. Like I was very fortunate that I got the job working at that studio the day after they opened. So I helped her build her business, which was incredible. So I made sure to stop by and thank her for that. I stopped by another studio that I taught at. Found the director. Made sure I thanked her for the opportunity. Somebody go, like goes out of their way. You know, one of my colleagues has been really mentoring me through the you know being in this role. He has years and years of experience, and just showing him gratitude. Thing you know, thanking him for any t- amount of time that he gives me. I don't necessarily feel grateful for like my stuff and my things, but I practice gratitude and the people in my life.
1: Yeah, you practice gratitude through actions. Have you ever found yourself at a jumping-off point? And what I mean by that is a point in time where you're very, you're unsure of what to do next, but you know that you have to change something. You can't keep doing what you're doing. And that could be in your personal life or your work life.
2: Yeah, I would say the the biggest example of that would have been my, my last job of being really feeling like I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place, knowing that I have the skills to really make an impact like this is and you know the honor to be in a leadership position in such a large organization that touches so many people this is me reaching out to mentors and having these conversations having these really hard conversations and being like well do you is that what you want to do do you feel like you actually have the tools to be able to do that do you feel like you're actually supported to do that the answer is no well then what's the point? And that was, it was a really hard piece of humble pie that I had to eat there and being like, you know what? I could do this, but I don't want to. And that's okay. It's okay. Like we talk about, you know, company fit and I was trying to be, I was, I was a square peg and I'm trying to fit in the round hole. And the only way for me as a square peg to fit in the round hole is to get smaller and not live up to my full potential. And I, it's just not worth it. And so I had that jumping off point of like, you know what? It's not me. It can't be me that saves this organization. I'm not the right person as much as I try to fit to be the right person to lead this organization. And that's okay.
1: Elizabeth, thank you so much for spending some time with us this afternoon. You're definitely an impactful person in our area. I know that you're making huge things happen over at Franklin IQ. And, And I hope that the folks listening here got a lot of permission to learn skill sets from any number of places i mean you've used dance to build well a baking career and and also help grow leaders in our area especially with our vets our military and our government contractors that support them so i really appreciate all the work you're doing And thanks again for being here.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. Thanks for listening to DC Local Leaders. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on LinkedIn and YouTube by searching DC Local Leaders on Instagram at DC Local Leaders or our website, dclocalleaders.com. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you find great podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.